Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause, the podcast for growth-oriented entrepreneurs and executives who aspire to create positive change in the world. Are you in business for more than just profit? Then like and subscribe today and join our channel to become a hustler for a cause. Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause. Today we are honored to have with us special guest, Daniel Holly. Dan is a performance and life coach in equality, equity, and social cohesion with certifications as an NLP practitioner, cognitive behavioral therapy counseling, PTSD counseling, life coaching, and more. He helps people challenge their own thinking in a safe, healthy environment, enabling them to live happier, more fulfilled lives. Dan, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Sean. I'm going to immediately correct something that you said there. For the sake and purpose of clarity here, I am training in those things. Okay. So in terms of life coaching, that's cool. But the NLP practitioner, CBT stuff, that's where I'm training. So I haven't got it yet. I don't want anyone out there to think like, oh, you know, this guy's really super qualified. Like, no, I'm getting there. Give me a second. (laughs) We're all growing, right? We're all on route. So all good stuff. You've got a really interesting background. When I was looking everything up, you graduated school for computer games production. At oh, some yeah. point, you were a commentator for esports tournaments. Yes. Right? You uh, coached a number of different people, including one that was a TEDx speaker. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you do a lot of educational talks on social cohesion. Where did it all start for you? Man, I love it. You've really gone right into the back end of my life. I, beautiful. Love it, Sean. <laughs> to kind of go from it, I would say that it started when I was 16 years old and I was actually called at college to cover someone who was doing a public speaking competition. Yeah, I was just summoned to do this thing. And it was the day before I was asked to do this. I didn't necessarily place anywhere, but I got a special mention, which still was enough. You know, it's kind of the unmentioned second place, basically, which meant a lot to me because I was like, yeah, I've got a day to, to plan this. This is amazing. What else can I do with this? And as I grew up, one thing I became aware of, I worked in hospitality for a very long time as well, certainly alongside commentating on esports and things like that. And one thing I started to recognize was that every person that I spoke to, for the most part, was not doing the most with their talents and dreams. And honestly, neither was I, to be really frank. Parallel to that was a journey of identity that I was struggling on, exploring, thinking about the real uphill battle, to be honest. Loads of things. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be mixed race? What does it mean to be black, white? All the stuff. I mean, that was over the course of like a decade and a half. It really came to a head when I discovered what coaching was and recognized that I could have a career where I could encourage people to live into the dreams that they had, live into the talents and strengths that they had. And then when I started to recognize that the coaching industry looked pretty problematic to me, it started to look pretty singular colored, (laughs) to be (laughs) frank. If you had put coaching in your head, you had a clear identity of what coaching looked like. And it was pretty exclusive. And I didn't like that. I wasn't comfortable with it. Also, among the conversations around coaching, you could talk about so many things. One of the things you couldn't talk about was identity. You couldn't talk about sexuality or race and stuff like that. But then I noticed that the way that certain coaches were handling those conversations were actually doing more harm than good. And the part that I picked up was like, well, wait a second. Coaching is like a lot of listening, really a lot of active listening. And I thought, 
how many people out there who have been, let's say a woman being coached by a man, you know, black person, gay, bi, trans, whatever, who've been coached and haven't really been heard because of their experiences as said identity, right? How many of them are not actually had their fullest potential been brought out because their coach believes that those things are not important in terms of a person's goals and desires, barriers, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I started to look at coaching in that space. What changed over time was understanding that I myself, and this is part of the work that I certainly looked at, was matters of privilege. And actually not just in terms of color, but actually in many different areas, right? For one, I'm British and apparently, certainly in America, being British automatically means you trust me more. My accent. <laughs> Seriously, like that's actually been proven there. So Americans trust me more because of my accent. And not just any old British, like this isn't the British accent. This is one of very, very many. But because it's a well-spoken accent that's based on feedback. I have that privilege where I'm more likely to be trusted in my information than, than if I had a different accent. I'm six foot four, around two, 10 to 20 pounds. So I've got quite an athletic figure and size. I'm a guy, for one, I'm cisgendered. I'm mixed race, so I'm light skin tone. And I actually grew up in a financially very comfortable background. There's a lot of privileges that I had that actually weren't really gonna allow me to truly speak to the sorts of challenges that other people faced. So was I going to back out of it? No, actually what I thought was, well, what I can do is not necessarily speak on a platform for people who have their own voice, who have their own platforms, who can speak out for themselves, but actually work in areas where I support companies, schools, and individuals who do this sort of work, who actively look to embrace diversity, who embrace identity, who embrace difference, and really understand the process of what it means to really understand those things really get it. That's great. And what do you enjoy most about doing that? What was the real inspiration for you? Was it really that understanding and grappling identity for yourself that made you want to do it for others? Or was there something else? Oh, man, totally that. I mean, actually, as you asked the question, I had an answer. And then when you said, did you do it for yourself? I was like, yeah, that's actually what it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was. No, because my journey of identity and understanding who I am, what I'm about, what I love, what I don't love, and then creating the boundaries around who I spend time with, who I don't spend time with, who I speak to, who I don't speak to, et cetera, et cetera. Honestly, I've fallen in love with myself. I've fallen in love with the person that I am at a wonderfully deep level where I can feel almost at home wherever I am. I can feel joy in as many scenarios as I want to feel joy in. And the connection I have with myself is something that I celebrate just by being. That's it. This came from a place where I really struggled because I'm not the most masculine guy you could meet in your life. I'm not a macho man, even though my physique suggests so, which is, of course, representative of how people would sometimes approach me and how sometimes people would respond to me. And of course, my voice is quite loud. It bellows as well. So there's a presence that I naturally have. I'm large in voice and stature, mm -hmm. but I'm a teddy bear. And trying to get people to understand that I'm sensitive, which means, of course, when I have feelings, it doesn't compute for some people. That was hard as well. Really working through all of that and finding that solidarity of me allowing myself to be who I am. I'm of a number of privileges and I've had this challenge. What the hell would it have been like for people who haven't had supportive people in their life, yeah. who haven't had the gusto to be able to practice themselves enough? to be able to find spaces where they feel they can be themselves. And of course, have financial support from people around them. Of course, be naturally trusted because of the levels of attractiveness they have. And again, I've been told I'm quite a handsome guy. So again, there's another privilege. And so there's so many different things. I'm like, I've had all these things play 
to my advantage. What about people who don't have those to their advantage? How much harder is it then to go through that journey to find that thing? That a lot of this speaks to this element of I've really enjoyed me for so long. Even when I wasn't enjoying me, I now really enjoy all of me and my history and past because I've come to this place. And I just think, what would the world be like if everyone felt this connected to who they were truly? Really understood, held themselves accountable to their faults, really understood what, what I needed and what was good for me and what wasn't good for me in my relationships, in my work, in my free time. All of my time now is used doing things that actually fuel me. And it's a wonderful feeling. So it's something that I'd want everyone on this earth to experience. It's awesome. It's really powerful. You know, there's all these business priorities, of course, right? You're trying to figure out. But then also, yeah. like, how do you have that <clears throat> conversation in a real meaningful way? Where mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, it seems like most businesses don't bring, like, your whole selves to the table at all, no matter who you are, right? So, like, I'm really curious. And before we, like, dive into the concept of social cohesion, I'd like to, yeah. like, kind of, like, step back into, like, what is diversity and equality concept and okay why doesn't it work what was the intent of it originally and then let's like move into that whole cohesion concept and where do we take this oh man okay so if i can do my best to make this concise so i'm actually going to reframe what you said there. i know this probably isn't what you intended to say but i'm going to reframe it you said why it doesn't work i said why it's not working yet yeah from the beginning there was certainly a time where it became very clear that there was a massive underrepresentation of any form of marginalized identity in positions of power, in positions of government, leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And you could easily say, we need diversity in positions of power because it speaks to leadership for everybody. Not only is it a matter of representation to say that anyone can make it to this level, but it's also the case that we can have people that we can relate to at that level. For example, I mean, it's quite similar politically in the US as it is here. There seems to be almost this two-party race. But what if you're someone where neither of those two parties works for you? Because they're not saying anything that's relatable. They're not saying anything that speaks to you. And of course, then you end up being one of those people who doesn't vote. You're not participating. And you're not feeling part of anything because you're like, well, no one represents me up there. And in government, if all you have is a bunch of people who don't represent you in any way, then you're, of course you're going to disengage quite heavily from that. You're not going to feel it. Same with leadership. Exactly the same with leadership. We may not necessarily want to show up for people in such an inspired way when we don't have a leader who sees us, who's relating to us, who understands us, as we would if we had someone who genuinely does all the things. Think of it as like the difference between your boss and your best friend, you know? Now, of course, the idea is not to say that your boss should be your best friend, but there certainly can be an element of connection that can be built there. One of the reasons, so I'm answering your second question before we go on to that one you just asked, excuse me. So, so one of the reasons that it's struggling to work is it's hard. There's a lot of hard, inconvenient truths across the board that are really difficult pills to swallow. And what we've done, I say we on purpose, if we have taken on certain aspects of our identity as intrinsic parts of who we are when actually they were very arbitrary rules. And this is where it might get a little bit messy. This is an audiobook I listened to recently. It's called The Descent of Man. The story of masculinity. What is masculinity? How do we define it? We could say it's a set of these things that make us men, but of course, are all men all around the world behaving and acting and raised the same? No, they are not. 
does that mean that not every man around the world can claim any form of masculinity? Well, no, it can't. So how can we make it work? Is it that masculinity is not in fact this one thing that makes up what a man is? Or is it actually that masculinity is whatever a man perpetuates as a behavior? Does it become a little bit more agile, a little bit more flexible? But the problem is that what people can do and what we've seen men do, for example, is go, right, masculinity is this thing. It's fixing cars, chopping down trees, sniffing oil. I don't know what men do. (laughs) (laughs) Right, rubbing dirt on our faces, stuff like that. You know, and doing that. And and we make that an intrinsic part of who we are. We make it so much part of who we are that if that characteristic is challenged in any way whatsoever, we will feel like our sense of self is challenged. And our sense of self is a reflection on our sense of reality, which basically means that what we see to be real is being tampered with, which no one is comfortable with. Whereas if we were able to understand that what we are is a smorgasbord of different complexities that are still yet to be truly understood, then our identity can be as fluid as we want it to be, or as rigid as we want it to be, as long as we understand it is ours as a unique individual and not necessarily something that is for everyone else. Let's hit the nail on the head here. Let's say if you are white, there's less of a chance that you will be raised to be taught about race. In fact, there's a better chance that you'll be told that race is not a thing, it doesn't exist, you know, it's made up and color, there's no such thing as color and you're colorblind, et cetera, et cetera. And that can seem great and fine because it works very well when the history of whiteness doesn't have much to say in regards to how race has really directly impacted them. So it's easy to go with that narrative. Now I say more likely on purpose, If you're black, you are more likely to have had that conversation that says your skin color makes a difference here. It matters. The way you say things, the way you move in certain spaces will have an impact that you may not be ready for that will come back at you. You would have watched yourself. So now you've got two different groups of people who have both been taught two very different stories and raised with this. So it's instilled in their mind about the same thing. So when they come together, there's immediately a disconnection. There's immediately a, that's not what I believe. That's not what I know to be true. And so one of the reasons it's not working right now is that we are really tying ourselves to what we have heard growing up, which of course has only been cemented by what we've seen, read, experienced, and come to a place where we are so solid on those things, never having them challenged, that any other opinion or view on it is wrong and incorrect. We can't be wrong because some people being wrong is not something that they do. Part of some people's identity is being right and being wrong means my identity is falling apart and I can't have that happen because again, a lot of anxiety comes with that. It's a scary place to be. There's so many other reasons that it doesn't work. Again, you can look at the idea of being a man being such a strong thing that the concept of transitioning from male to female is something out of this world. And I always speak to the nonsense of that because it still pits this idea that men and women are worlds, you know, universes apart. We're completely different species and we can't possibly ever understand. Women are not to be understood and men are just to be grumbly, you know, old farts who sit around the house all day. You know, and these nonsense things that we say to ourselves and it's a really insidious message that goes into why there's issues around all of these different things, being transgender, even still being gay to this day, being black, et cetera, et cetera. We've tied these things so closely to who we are that we forget that actually, if we let that thing go, we will not die. And actually we will have better, more improved, open, happier lives if we open ourselves up to those dynamics. So yeah, the concept of beliefs being deep rooted that you don't even recognize, like us coming together now, coming into this conversation from completely different places, 
Mm. You know, at least I could recognize a little bit that like, I know that I know nothing about this. Right. But like, that's like as far as I could go until that's the great place to start. Though. So, like, yeah. Yeah. There was one example that like, like I didn't understand what privilege was growing up. Right. Like, sure. And it took, maybe it was like a year or two ago. There was, I don't know if you ever heard the TV show, Adam ruins everything. Oh my God. Yes. I don't think I watched it, but I, that, yeah. yeah, that yeah. So he's, sure. he has this, um, this episode on the suburbs, right? Okay. And this concept of redlining that, mm -hmm. again, like, I don't really follow politics that much. And maybe it's like that I fall somewhere in the middle or something, but I don't really follow that much. Like, I feel like the sides are so biased and everything, but there was this federal policy back in like the 30s and 40s called redlining, where okay. they actually would split up neighborhoods and decide like, these neighborhoods are fine yes to give financing and loans for homes. And these neighborhoods are not. And those mm. divides were actually made based on like races that live in certain areas and stuff. And then yeah. you go to like, now here I am, you know, like a couple generations later, right? Mm. And how much divide did some small, like, I mean, it's not small, right? That's huge. Don't want to understate that. Like, that's something that just going into life, I would have no idea about. And just like, does that moment completely change my perception of, realizing that even if I feel like, oh, I came from some like blue collar family, yeah, you know, where we just had enough to get by, it still may have been a lot more than other people. So mm -hmm. thanks so much for bringing this conversation today. Like this is a, a great place to start. So I guess as we move forward and start to bring this into the business world, how do we now frame this? Like is the problem that the vocabulary we were using before is fundamentally like flawed and that causes the conversation and the gap or where do we go? In terms of business, it's funny, there've been many cases that are brought up around business. So there's actually been a study done, hundreds of companies, many, many, many countries that demonstrate and prove mm -hmm. that diversity actually empowers the performance of a company by up to 35%. Err on the side of caution to say that this also is relatable to people's personal lives. It's not just about business, it's personal lives as well. And I transfer that over. But it was kind of problem number one when it all started. That was the original business case. This will work. People brought in policies and introduced these kind of guidelines and rules and stuff. And, you know, there was the whole positive discrimination, et cetera, et cetera, which actually is a different thing. And that didn't work for obvious reasons. But the problem with it was that it was the word inclusion. The word inclusion. This is why I say social cohesion and not necessarily diversity inclusion even though i still work with people in that in that field but the word inclusion didn't hit deep enough of an understanding to leaders and employers about what was really necessary if i decided let's say my favorite thing in the world is birds i love birds birds are the best thing in the world can't can't top it and I start a company that actually has nothing to do with birds, but I decide that the culture of my company is all about birds. Everything's related to birds. All the rooms are named after birds. And, you know, all the meetings will have different tiers of bird types and all this stuff. And that's how it works. Now, my idea, if someone said, right, we need to be more inclusive, what businesses have done is they've gone, hey, all right, let's get more people into this system. Let's just bring as many people as you can into this whole bird culture. But what we're not going to check is whether or not people even like birds. We don't know if people have a fear of birds. We don't know if people care much about birds. We don't know if people are inspired by birds. All we know is that I like birds. The culture I set up is about birds. 
And I've been told to include people in that culture. That is the analogy of what took place and how this thing kind of fell apart in terms of businesses is that they went, we've got a system that's set up predominantly by white people. We've been told to include people in it. We're not going to ask whether or not they feel safe in this environment. We're not going to ask whether or not they feel inspired or empowered in this environment. We're not going to protect them well enough when things come up that are directly related to their, their diverse identity because we've not had to deal with that. That's not part of our system that we've set up because our system is set up for a zero color, colorblind setup. Yeah, what you have then is, and actually you can see the rebuttals coming back where businesses said, well, I've hired so-and-so and this has happened and that and all they've done is cause problems. And, and then what happens, and this is actually a reality that's taking place with someone close to me, is a person has been discriminated against directly, offensively. And while they were upset, their other concern was that if they left their job, what reference would be given? What, what would be the thing they'd be remembered for? Is it for their work? Is it for their quality? Is it for their talent? Or is it the fact that they had to leave because there was a discrimination case? And next thing you know, other businesses go, oh no, we haven't dealt with that. We don't want to deal with, you don't want to troublemake around here. So someone who's been discriminated against now gets a lesser chance of being hired because people are like, we haven't got a system in place to manage discrimination properly. So it's easier just not to hire them. So the challenges among businesses and where, where I certainly focused is looking at businesses that are already actively interested in doing this. Like I said, I empower people who are already in these conversations, already in these places. Some companies, the biggest companies at the moment will not necessarily speak on diversity and inclusion as a strategy. And that's another thing that hurt my feelings. It's like, right, this 2020 is the year we're going to focus on diversity or 2021 or whatever. And it's like, right, so it's a strategy because surely actually what you want to look at is a culture here that lasts forever. Yep. The very concept of introducing new, fresh minds and talents into your company being a strategy is a little odd to me when your business is looking to constantly innovate, grow and earn more money. So why is that not an integral part of what your company automatically does? So how do you even take the approaches necessary to start? The only exposure I have to like HR would be mm. being an interviewer or an interviewee and like that's it. What does the company need to have in place? It sounds like it's more than just the hiring process, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. System two and all this stuff. So what does that picture look like that you want to build in each of these companies that you work with? The very space itself, in my head, companies should have, and I deliberately say should, on board a form of counselor or therapist. They absolutely should have a coach. And that's not even into any kind of social cohesion matter. I mean, they should have a coach because you have someone there whose direct line job is to ensure that your, your employees are working at their best and they've got everything they need to do their best, for sure. I feel understanding breaking down gender binaries, for sure, because the challenges gender binaries have a real take in what happens in the workplace. They really do have a strong take in what takes place in the workplace. The corporate world is, is still, still incredibly masculine. And yet some of the skills that come along with femininity actually have incredible powers and they're increasing. They're increasing, right? Empathy, connection, emotional intelligence, all of these things that aren't traditionally connected with masculinity are actually now becoming an increasing skill that's required in businesses for them to thrive, for people to work better, for people to perform better, right? For people to feel safe. That certainly needs to be addressed, absolutely. If you really wanna go that far, gender neutral bathrooms, for one, I think having a genuine 
very strict policy in place as to what happens should anyone, and I think this is important, should anyone feel as though they have been discriminated against? I can hear people think when I say that, oh, but that puts the victim in power and the victim can make false claims and stuff. But that's why you've got to look at the system in place and you've really got to make sure that any claim that's made is taken seriously, mm -hmm. but at the same time, obviously doesn't disrupt the flow of business too much. And there can be fair decisions made, investigations are done properly, and you can feel as though a person's concerns were really truly heard and not disrespected. Because let's say if that person who had been discriminated against, let's say they had perhaps in a case been somewhat a bit dramatic or they had taken things, you know, a bit too far. And it's because the, they have had many, many years of experience of said discrimination and they're just really struggling with that particular thing at the moment. Does that mean, you know, they're, they're a nuisance? Does that mean they're a pain in the butt? How's that going to make them feel? Do you really want that person in the company? Are they performing well? Are they doing well? And is it better to actually let them feel like they will always have a voice and they'll always have a place as well as, hey, we've got a counselor therapist on site here for you to speak to. We want you to know that we care. We hired you for a reason right? We want to care about you. And the return you could get from that performance of showing that you care about the individual actually means that, that person is far more likely to turn around and go, holy crap, these people actually care about me. There's a lot of risk mitigated by basically giving a crap about the individual who's hurt. And of course, the individual who supposedly committed said offense, right? Having a conversation with them as well. Because it's not to say that they have actually done anything wrong. It's just to say, hey, we need to understand what happened here. We all need to understand what happened here. There's too much of the pointing fingers and absolving ourselves of blame without actually truly understanding why these things happen. And that's both in a business sense and a personal sense. Where does social cohesion come from and how does that play into this? Social cohesion came together because it was a recognition of the matrix of connections between all the identifiers. Right now, you can know that there's trans rights, there's women's rights, there's men's rights, there's black people's rights, you know, Black Lives Matter, of course, gay rights, bi rights, all sorts, right? And if you really listen, everyone is actually asking for the very same thing. For me to only focus on racial diversity could, would also be me actually having to look at, because of the intersectionalities, would also have to be looking at gay rights, would also have to be looking at trans rights, women's rights, because if I were to look at, you know, black diversity and black rights and so on, of course, black is not just male. Black is not just cisgendered. It's all of the things. So for me to say, oh yeah, I'm going to do this for, you know, racial justice. Eventually I'm going to come across that conversation where, yes, so what happens in a trans black person's life? And so I thought, do you know what really needs to take place is an opportunity to really encompass all of these conversations and bring companies and individuals to a place where we can start to open our minds up to the possibilities of the individual, to the experiences of the individual. So there is a connected ability for everyone to feel seen and also perform. That's one of the things that's been, been said amongst, again, women, uh, people of color, again, the LGBT movements, see us, we exist, we are real, we are here. We are not something to brush aside. We're not something to be shot in the street. We're not something to laugh over. We are real people. And that conversation brings everyone together. And it means having the tough conversations, of course, about the intersectionalities, about our beliefs. And again, it also, it's a holding of accountable, not just to a group of people to say, hey, you need to do this, because everyone has their bias that they need to address. Everyone has their place, their prejudice that they need to look at. 
And just because you've been a victim, that does not mean you cannot be a villain. And so it's an all encompassing message that says we, and, and time and time again, it's been proven that we do better when we come together. What we have yet to see is how much better we can do when we've got a truly beautifully mixed bag of societies pulling together to achieve something. And you can look at some of the great stories that have taken place during this pandemic mm -hmm. of people doing some absolutely magnificent things and doing it for people who aren't like them, people who don't believe the same things as them, you know, who haven't had the experiences they've had. And in a way you could say they had no obligation to do that. They chose to do that. They made that choice and it's a wonderful thing to see. So I think if that's what that small group of people can do at that scale, what happens if we scale up? I feel like I'm just going to sit here now and like think the rest of the day through. Like, <laughs> there's just so much that you describe this company that just to me feels like I would love to work there. Even just having like a coach that you have access to or having a counselor that like mental health is a fluctuating thing from day Seriously. to day, from hour Seriously. to hour, right? Mm. And a lot of people don't realize that like sometimes you're having a bad day. It doesn't mean something bad, right? It just means that that's just where your state is. And yeah. I guess, like, as you look at these other things about identity, I'm sure that that amplifies a good day to a bad day for different people. Mm. So you're talking about support systems that come into place for the business, right? Mm -hmm. Is there different ways of the hiring process or deciding on who comes on board? Like, I know there's these I feel like I've worked at companies where they've had like their diversity initiative. <laughs> that's like, yeah, I yeah. need to have this many of this type of person. That's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Or is that wrong? And if that's wrong, what is the right way to go about this? I'm going to immediately say it's wrong. Okay. If you have, if you end up with a diversity initiative, mm -hmm. it automatically puts people on a pedestal they didn't ask for. It's not because of their talent, you know, it's not because of their skill. It's mm -hmm. not because of what they can actually do. It's because of something that they are aware has been held against them. So whether it's good or bad, it's not something that wants to be highlighted all the time. Because yeah. that's also going to run in a person's mind. That could almost instill a sense of imposter syndrome. I don't actually belong here. I'm only here because I'm a woman or because I'm gay. and blah, blah, blah. I'm not actually here because of what I know which means what I know is apparently redundant to these people. And you can imagine the performance that comes out of a person that feels that way. I would say no. You can have resumes, CVs, application forms, whatever, mm -hmm. where you only ask for what you really, really need to know. Do you need to know a person's name in the application process? Do you need to see their face? Do you need to see their nationality? Or do you need to see the skill sets that that individual is going to bring to your business it's going to help that business grow. People talk about meritocracy. This is one of the funny arguments I see, you know, they, they talked about positive discrimination. And in this case, I'm saying like, rightly so, because it caused a lot of problems. You can say that, oh, these, these black guys were hired into this job and it's great. Look at how great this company is doing. And people, I've seen people say, oh no, but it's about the meritocracy. Why not hire people just for how good they are? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you've got to ask, well, why, what's to say that they weren't? Maybe it's because the article says they're black and that becomes the focal point, but they're not just going to hire a bunch of black guys they found in McDonald's. They probably did look at their skill set, mm -hmm. but at the same time, if we're going to speak to meritocracy and if we're going to say, right, hire the best person for the job, what is the relevancy of all the other stuff that goes on there? 
right? Maybe things like hobbies and personal interests, okay. Maybe they could ask that into the interview when we sit down and talk, right? But if you're just looking for the person who can do the job, then the rest of it, to me, is kind of like that feels a little bit unnecessary. Because immediately, without us knowing, and this is, I know that HR across the world is currently getting one big unconscious bias training session at the moment, which again is laughable to me because we get these training sessions and some people I know walk out of those sessions being like, well, I guess I'm not racist now, let's go. And that's not how it works at all. (laughs) That's not how it works at all. The moment we see anything that leans towards a person's identity, our bias kicks in straight away. I could give you a name and a person's face could be built off a name alone. And from that person's name, you're not even recognizing that you're building a whole character around that person off their name alone. So by the time you've got past name, nationality, age, and hobbies, and it, you've already built a person in your head. And you may not have realized the decision you've made in the back of your mind as to whether or not you're even gonna get on with that person. The skills suddenly mean nothing. That's if we're looking at a meritocracy. If you're looking at someone that you want to work with, that you want to have in your company, it does get a little bit more complicated, but that actually comes back to creating a culture in your business that actually says we are open to everyone and actively so, actively so. And that's why it comes back to the support mechanisms. That's why it comes back to processes in place to take on discriminatory behavior Mm. and being serious about that, not, you know, pussyfooting around it. Like, let's have one meeting about this and pass on, right? Once you've got that culture in place, then it's going to be a lot easier to be able to hire people in. There's loads of different ways that you could go about it. I mean, there's just a couple. I think it's just a matter of first asking yourself, are you a place? And actually, what you said earlier, I want to jump on that because that's a really good point to make is that you don't know. Mm -hmm. A beautiful place to start. You don't know. And that's okay. That's absolutely fine that you don't know. Because actually what you've given yourself is a blank canvas to absorb the information instead of having preconceived ideas about what you should do, which is harder to bat up against when you are given this new information. A lot of people out there say they're experts on race when actually they've never read a book about it. (laughs) Everyone's trying to say what is or is not racist, but it's like, how do you know? What what book have you read? Where have you got this from? Who wrote the book? (laughs) Right? Yeah, the company really needs to look at whether or not they are creating that space. And of course, you can look at people engagement programs, right? Asking the employers, what needs to change? What's going well? What's not working? And then as I've experienced as an employee in many companies, actually being the kind of company where you want to be honest, right? It really takes some work. But the goal is performance, right? The goal is performance. So when you say the company should be honest, what do you mean by that? I can't speak for everyone. Yep. And if your listeners are allowed to leave comments, then I'd love to see what they said about this. But there have been times where I've been given a company survey, right? And I've been brutally honest, really brutally honest. Certainly in hospitality, the number of times I've filled out a survey saying you need to look at your employee's mental health because it ain't right. You need to look at that. And nothing was ever done. Nothing ever done. Maybe uh, there's a reason for that, but either way, I left the industry because it was trash. But (laughs) I'd say it's also when you're asked questions about how business can improve, I think people can feel threatened. If I say I'm not happy, is my boss going to come at me? Mm -hmm. If I say something's wrong, do I trust that my boss is the kind of person who will take that feedback openly and comfortably? Whether the feedback's anonymous or not, am I going to suffer repercussions if I say, yes, there needs to be some improvements and they need to be X, Y, and Z? And not every company operates like that. 
Some companies, they'll pretend, they'll have the facade of openness. They'll have the facade of, oh yes, we care about oil employees, but actually their pride is as fragile as a paper bag made of tissue in the rain. It needs to have that position where if you're gonna ask a question, you better make sure you have the foundation to be able to handle the feedback from your employees. And I, can, I mean, that can start right now. You can ask your employees right now, you know, what kind of thing needs to change in this business? What culture do you want to see in this business? Do we have company values and are we actually adhering to them accordingly? Do we need to change them? And if so, what would they be? Mm-hmm. And how can we build a set of values that reflect the desire for us to be a company that is represented, even though we don't have global reach, we are represented by a global set of employees. So I was actually going to ask you, like, if there was one thing that you would ask everyone to take away from this, mm-hmm. would, it be, would it be that? Like, just start with just the company survey and just asking. Do you know what? Yeah, I would say that. I think for you, the listener, and if you're a leader listening to this and you have your own company, I would say absolutely. For an individual and a corporate base, what values do you have? Are you using them in the appropriate manner or using them at all? What values would help you become a person who is open and welcoming to any individual that enters your space? And of course, those values need to serve you as well. Okay, so I know we didn't get a chance to talk too much about your business. So so tell me about it. How do you help to enable this kind of change? So for me, I, I will go to leaders first. I don't like it when people ask me to look at their employees and the leader kind of steps aside and goes, okay, can you just deal with them? Because it's got to be led from the top, right? Your leader has to be involved in the project, whatever it is. So I will work with the leader if they're the one who approaches me and says, hey, can you come in and do this work? And of course, we'll sit down and explain what exactly the work needs to look like. I do coach performance and life coaching with individuals who work or are actually either they work in equality, diversity and inclusion and equity and so on. But actually, if it's just an individual who has those values, then absolutely. My role really wants to empower any institution, any business, any person who wants to see empowerment spread through a greater number of underrepresented individuals out there. So I'd like to be the silent person in the background, even though I've talked a lot on this episode, (laughs) the silent person in the background, empowering that empowerment. I mean, when it comes to individuals, naturally, it's a case of what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to do? Facilitating coaching that process. In businesses, again, Where's the challenges? What is it you're trying to achieve? What are you trying to do? And then it's a far more intricate exploration of going into their policies, going into their day-to-day behavior, going into their process of hiring, going into their process of, you know, handling discriminatory behavior, all those sorts of things. I mean, in schools, how do the teachers, how does the headmaster, how do the students actually work together to create an environment where, where everyone feels safe. That one's the most delicate as well, because you're talking about young people here. Young people can very easily be radicalized. And even mild radicalization can have a huge impact on another student's life. So being able to work in that capacity is actually more challenging, to be honest with you, really challenging, because you're working with two different age groups from two different eras, trying to work together, while at the same time having very, very different ideas of what's right and wrong and the demographics of teachers absolutely does not reflect the demographic of students that's actually one of the biggest problems certainly in this country at the moment i'm pretty sure in the u.s as well the demographic of teachers does not match the demographic of students and it's a real problem so who's your ideal client 
And how do they know that it's time to reach out to you? I couldn't name a person. My ideal client, funny, I always picture them in my head as a person, I'm always picturing a, a person. But to be honest, when I look at my ideal client, what I see them doing is a humanitarian, a philanthropist, someone who hasn't amounted billions in wealth, mm-hmm. but someone who has a good track record of supporting, speaking out for, and working towards the equality of all people. Only because coaching that person, empowering that person, they already have the faculty to be able to do so much more with it. The impact is exponential. And thankfully, I mean, in my network, they're friends, mm-hmm. but I, have, I do know people who, who are on their way to absolutely being that. But I'm not being their friend, so one day I end up being, you know, their coach. That's not the goal. I'm not gonna, that's not it. That's not it. It's not that long a game. I'm not doing it. <laughs> but yeah, that would definitely be the ideal for sure. Awesome. So I think that's probably about all the time we have, but there's cool. so much more to talk about on this topic. So where can people go to learn more? So you can visit my website at www.daniel-holly, that's H-O-L-L-E-Y.com. The website is limited in information because from what I honestly get, my value comes out of speaking to me directly. You can go to the website, there are resources there. You can, there's actually resources for schools, business and individuals. There's a form you can start working with, you can print it, download it, whatever. And actually in a way, start coaching yourself and coaching your own business. If you were so inclined, you can start doing that. But for the most part, people can get in touch with me, yeah, via there. You can also follow me on Instagram where I post videos on the regular talking about the subject and that's at the only other Dan. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time today and uh, look forward to having you on again in the future. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it.